Listener Production. Welcome to Episode 4 of Up Close, Conversations with Modern Veterans. As our veterans came home from deployment, each one needed a particular form of support, whether it was physical or psychological. Having a partner in the armed forces, especially one who'd served overseas, was an advantage. Even though Australia was at war in Iraq and Afghanistan, military families still had children to raise and lives to lead. Some relationships survived the rigours of deployment, others did not. She came in the picture in uh, uh, 87. I was on HMS Darwin and um, I was in town at one of the bars in there, as we young people we may have done, allegedly. Uh, <laughs> and um, this young lady came in and she said, oh, I'm, I'm looking for a, a particular person and... And I thought, oh, hello, she looks all right. <laughs> and um, I asked her to give me a lift back to the ship and we ended up talking on the wharf for about, oh, a couple of hours. And then we, we, never, um, we never saw each other for a long time until about 1995, yeah, I was um, representing the Navy in um, rugby union. And my darling wife, Sharon, was uh, representing services in softball. She's a, a top-level softball player, um, absolutely magic. So, yeah, so we went from there. Sharon's original trade, um, she, she was a, like a radio operator, but she ended up being a linguist, speaking Indonesian, and we both ended up warrant officers at, at the end as well. At that time when we got together, there wasn't too many, we call them service families, where, where both couples are, are serving, and there wasn't too many, but we see a lot more now because, more interaction because people work with each other, but it was paramount. Without having someone who understood what went on, she could pick when I was having issues, I could pick when she was having issues. We spent a lot of our relationship apart um, from each other because Sharon would deploy, I'd deploy. But the, the positive of that, that I understood when Sharon was away what was going on and she understood at home when I was with the kids. Uh, Sharon deployed when our kids were 18 months old. She went to Timor. With, and we, I got twins, a boy and a girl, 23-year-old. And vice versa, when I was away, Sharon could understand what I was doing. We didn't have to say anything to each other. She could understand what I was doing, and I understood that what Sharon was doing when she was at home with the kids. So from that side, we, we almost had this um, telepathic thing that we knew what each other was doing. I chatted to a chaplain, which I, I knew, and uh, he we, every ship now takes a chaplain with him. Funny, it's just by coincidence that this um, chaplain actually christened my kids. Uh, way back when they were, were younger, obviously. Um, so I just talked to him, but, but I, I'm not a good... At that time, I, I keep a lot to myself, and I think that's been detrimental down the track. I didn't have a lot of people to talk to because I was a chief, I knew everything. I'm very good at hiding... Uh, um, I, I have issues now, I see psychs and I see different things, and they said I'm an expert at hiding. You come back into Sydney on the 10th of September 2004. The dock is full of people... It's, it's, uh, there's a moment of separation now. Did that change one's focus about the events that had happened? Did you start to think about it as an, in, as an individual then? Absolutely, it did. I mean, we were almost in the morning of our team because when you get back alongside, uh, that um, April 24th is almost a distant memory and you're now back with people who, who weren't there. You normally use, lose about, let's say, 40% of your crew will get posted off or 
things like that. So there's almost that mourning because we now we're now stepping away from this group of people that we become reliant on. I've still got to stay official because I still had reports to write at the end. I had to hand the aircraft back to the the squadron. I had to do all that before I could even relax. So what support? What's so you, you're back with Sharon now, though? Back with the family? How was that? Uh, it was it was a challenge because my kids had obviously got you know older at that stage, and because um, my kids were born in '97, so that would have made them about seven or eight. So it was as reforming. Um, uh, family and what, what we're doing back at home. Sharon and I getting back together, um, so we we're playing off the same song sheet. All things like that because Sharon had been running this show for six months or so. Same as when Sharon went away, she went through exactly the same thing. Um, we ended up going on to HMAS Canberra to do a, a what they call a, a paying off trip. We decided we were going to put our flight on the back of Canberra and we did a Southeast Asian trip because at that point, a lot of the young people had never done a Southeast Asian trip, especially people on our flight. So part of my career was still focused on our ship's flight, on the aircraft, on the ship, doing that. But we weren't doing an operational thing. We were doing a almost a fun cruise because we got to go to Japan, Hong Kong, uh, Korea, uh, Guam, all these things. So, so to us, it took the focus off off that operational side, which actually eased me in because at that point I was I was already a senior chief and I was looking at getting promoted to warrant officer. Right. So my next my next stage was to looking at coming off the ship and stepping away from being able to to take a flight to sea or, or go on a ship because um because I was a warrant officer and warrant officers at that point generally didn't go on a ship. <laughs> There's nothing better than a huge aircraft landing on the back of a flight deck or being in the middle of the Pacific Ocean or the Indian Ocean or that little thing when you've got those days, you walk out and the water is beautiful, crystal blue, those little things. I still had that in my mind. And I guess also that, that the exhilaration of a team operating at its peak. You can't beat it. There's, when, when, when you're operating at your absolute peak, when you're doing what you, I say, signed up to do, but um, doing what, what they expect us to do, there's an element of, of adrenaline there, of excitement. I was there just waiting and they, they said, all right, we're going to try something. We, we're starting to put warrant officers on ships, but they thought they'd try something different and they promote someone from chief straight to, not just to warrant officer in your trade, but to a ship's warrant officer, senior of all the sailors on the ship working directly for the commanding officer. As a ship's warrant officer, you, you go everywhere. You're the right-hand man or right or left-hand man, whichever way you look at it, of the CO, and you're there to be the conduit to the CO. You suddenly, you talk to officers in a different way. You're, you're a member of the wardroom where the officers live. You're a member of the chief's mess. You're a member of all the messes. Suddenly, I'm, I'm in this thing, and and I relish the role because it's it's about people. It's all about people, and I love being around people. Um, where I could talk down and I'd sit down and talk to the young seaman, Boson who sits on the back of the ship keeping an eye out or they, they cleaning things. I, How's your job, mate? And they would suddenly perk up and tell me. So, so I relish the role. I love the role. So I went back on HMAS Melbourne as the ship's warrant officer, not as part of the flight. So there's a whole different thing. And, and it's also somewhere where people say, oh, are you going to go to the hangar to do things or you're going to try to take over the aircraft? I said, no way. I, as a PA, you know everything. As a chief, you know even more about everything. As a warrant officer, you're walking on water and you know everything for everyone is the the way to put it. Fred Campbell knew he was closer to the end than the beginning of his naval career. 
He managed his PTSD by keeping busy on a string of postings. As a ship's warrant officer, I did ship's warrant officer on HMAS Melbourne. Then I went to uh, land base at HMAS Cerberus, where our recruit training come in. And that was an interesting one because my wife was also the um, ship's warrant officer at recruit school. So she would get the people coming in to do their 11-week training to get a, to turn them into sailors, and then I would get them when they started their trade training. So I did that. Then I was ship's warrant officer at HMAS Creswell, where our officers joined at a beautiful Jervis Bay. My officers looked at over the bay. I was very thankful for that. Then I went back on uh, uh, HMAS um, Parramatta as a ship's warrant officer. I actually took over from my wife as ship's warrant officer on there. And um, then I finished off, um, I went back on HMAS Melbourne as a ship's warrant officer just for a short period. For Lorraine Hatton, being posted overseas had been the most intense experience of her life. She was unprepared for the adjustments of coming home. Like Fred Campbell, Lorraine had married a soldier. When I actually came back from the deployment, you know, you're still running at that that high adrenaline level, but you're doing your normal job. And you're just thinking, what's going on with me? Like, and I ended up pretty much a mess as a warrant officer. And all I did was cry for a whole week. And I didn't know what was going on. And I had to have tablets to help make me sleep. And, you know, and then I think it was coming down from the drug of adrenaline after being on that high for six months. Let's just track back a little bit. How did you meet your husband? Oh, do I have to tell that story? (laughs) I actually met him on the deployment to Irian Jaya. He was my, my warrant officer discipline. He was the warrant officer at the time I was a sergeant. He went and spoke to his commander and said, I'm going to have a relationship with Sergeant Gardner. She doesn't know about it yet. And then my boss was a captain and of all things, his name was Captain Love. (laughs) It was crazy. (laughs) And they ganged up on me. And it it was like I had no choice. (laughs) I couldn't say no. (laughs) But no, it was was lovely the way we met. But I thought, I'm in so much trouble here. I think for me, because we were able to bounce things off each other and um, because he was infantry corps, I was signals. And, you know, we could work together, we could live together and, and we understood each other. Even when I look at now, I've been out for 14 years, we've had our ups and downs, but we've been there for each other because we've understood what we've been through. And sometimes when I've gone through something first, David, he doesn't get it until he goes through it. And then when he goes through it, he goes, oh, okay. And then because I, I can see the signs or I know what's going to happen because I can see it, um, yeah, it's, it's been a, a lot easier for us than I think some couples who one may be in the military and one isn't and sometimes they don't understand what they're going through. So I think in that aspect, it's been very great for both of us. He served for 28 years and his last um, posting was RSM, Regimental Sergeant Major of 2RER, of an infantry battalion. So, yeah, he's, he's got a very highly decorated career. 
he does. More so than me. <laughs> but you still give the orders at home, I hope. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> David Nicholson's tour of Afghanistan behind the wheel of a bushmaster had been torrid and demanding. David was a seasoned combat soldier, proud of his regiment's achievements in Afghanistan. After four encounters with IEDs, he knew his luck wasn't endless. He preferred to think of how many bombs he and the boys had avoided and that he was coming home in one piece. I do have a a good photo of one that I'm very happy I didn't hit, and that was up on a ridge line at a good drop off either side. So if you hit that, you didn't want to roll down it. Um, engineer section commander he said stop. I'm not too sure about the route. I want to send the dog out. Um, so we got little Flojo who was a, a bomb dog. She went out there and um, we were searching for a little bit. But, yeah, she um, she marked it, found it, and uh, we blew that in place and that was a massive IED. So we're pretty happy our little girl found it. But, yeah, there was other occasions where other vehicles have driven over IEDs and they were partial blown because they were still a little bit wet. Um, we had guys stand on IEDs that were partial blown and they were lucky that... You know, that was still wet as well. We had guys have uh, sneaky little tripwires trip on them. I think we had an IED in a tree as well. Um, yeah, there was heaps of... Uh, it, there was a lot of luck going on over there. Yeah. And um, I guess at times the, the place felt completely hostile. How did you maintain a sense of well-being, a sense of mission where you didn't know who the enemy was, you're mentoring a force that didn't necessarily you know, want to pull its own weight. How do you, how do you maintain a sense of mission uh, within that scenario? Um, just have a laugh with the boys. I don't know that was that was probably the best part of the whole trip. Is um, you know you, you get to do some pretty cool stuff, but you always always taking the piss. You always having a laugh. That Aussie larrikin thing. You always getting up to something. Um, you know, and we always had. Flojo was a massive part of the family over there. You know, if you ever had a crappy day, you you know, you just go give her a pat, give her a cuddle. You know, one of the engineers was playing the guitar, probably not very good, but we thought it was good. Um, yeah, it was just downtime, really. Your downtime was huge. Everyone got the rock or blues. You do a certain amount of time over there, you, you get two weeks off. Um, and then you come back to Afghan and then it's like, shit, I just want to get home. Um, you know, you get that little taste. I probably would have preferred if we just stayed, then you didn't get that taste. But, you know, towards the end of the trip, you just want to get home. You're getting tired. Um, you're just seeing the same crap over and over. But, you know, and then you get home and all you do is bitch and moan with the boys to get back over there. <laughs> it's it's a yeah it's a bloody roller coaster but yeah everyone as soon as they land back in Australia they just can we go back now it's a simple life over there. What were the toughest moments for you in your deployment? Probably when mates had to go home. Yeah, that that would have been the the crap you know the shittiest part of the whole thing was mate gets wounded or injured you know that they go home. 
you know, it, sometimes you don't know them, but uh, it just hits, uh, you know, it still hits hard. Uh, you see a, an Aussie flag draped over a coffin, um, knowing that there's a, you know, one of the lads in there. It's, um, yeah, um, we, we didn't have to, oh, we, we didn't get to any ramp ceremonies for our guys, but um, when we were ripping into country, um, we had to do one. So, yeah, that was, you know, it was for one of the Special Forces lads and didn't know him, but, geez, you know, seeing that Aussie flag draping over, it's, uh, yeah, it sucks. I guess the inevitable thought is, well, it could have been me or one of my mates. Yeah, and, you know, I think a lot of the boys had a chat before you, you know, well, while you're there or before you go over and um, you don't want to die, but if it happens, you've done it there, you're going to be remembered. So if it happens, it happens, you're not going to know about it. So, (laughs) What was it like leaving Afghanistan and coming home? Uh, I was excited. Um, mainly excited because, like, we're all coming home, like, together. So it wasn't as bad. I would have found it real hard to, um, if I had to leave it early. So, but coming home, I was excited. And then as soon as I was home, I just wanted to go back again. Basically, oh, we are told that we were were jumping on another trip pretty much straight away, which we are all excited for. And then got told, no, we're going to have a family year. Um, which turned out to be about 10 months outfield. So it didn't really turn out to be a family year at all. Um, I love field, so which is a very weird thing to say, but I enjoyed field quite a lot because it was, you know, you, you're back out there with the boys in the small group. You weren't dealing with the, you know, the rank structure back in barracks, um, you know, which was somewhat annoying majority of the time. Being outfield was your back being alone. And it's, again, simple life. Don't have to worry about anything back home. No bills, nothing. (laughs) I was going through a bit of a period of everything was pissing me off Um, and then basically said, I just need a, I just want to rest because, like, in the Navy, I was at sea for nine, ten months of the year. And then in the army with a deployment plus the years at the unit, you know, that was field majority of the year again. Um, I think I was just slowly wearing down a bit. Kim Morgan Short had lost her husband, Anthony Short, in a tragic training flight in 1997. She'd fought to clear Shorty's name of any blame for the accident. When a coronial inquest into Shorty's death was abandoned, Kim thought she was done. She packed up her children and moved to Ireland to become a country doctor. Destiny had other plans for her. There was unfinished business in Australia. Then it rankled me. It just rankled me. It bothered me when I came back to Australia. I thought, no, no, my husband deserves my support. I need to pick up where I left off. And so I took the Australian Air Force to court. And so as the navigator's widow, we were serving Air Force officers ourselves. We would have, both of us would have actually walked in and sat down with the powers that be and had a private conversation with them. And if they could have assured us of a couple of things, uh, we would have tolerated that and we would have 
been happy to do that behind closed doors, but nobody would talk to us. And no one in particular would talk to me. And it got very, very difficult to get the things I needed to say. And I then had a lot of support from behind the scenes. I had a couple of widows from the Black Hawk crash. I had a widow from the 707 crash who became one of my greatest supporters. I did have other people who supported me and said, right, well, this tolerance of risk, tolerance of accidents has got to change. The situation has got to change. Keep pushing. I actually ended up getting a lot of support from uh, Angus Houston, who became the chief of the Air Force. He was instrumental in actually calming me down. He did apologise to me, which I'd written down on a, on a napkin when I first started this process. Two things was clear Shorty's name and uh, get an apology. And Angus Houston actually flew me down to Canberra and apologised to me. He said, I'm so sorry that we, you know, we as in the Air Force didn't do the right thing by you and the other widow. How can we fix this? I want to help fix this. And he said, uh, there was no pilot error, so to speak. I mean, if we all accept that there were many things that contributed to this crash. Of course, he actually understood what I was doing and knew that I wasn't doing it to bring the organisation down. I was doing it to try and help them change the practices. And I, and I do believe I've helped. Uh, I think that um, Leo Davies, who was the recent past chief of the Air Force, he said to me at the 20th anniversary, he said, Kim, he said, you can patch us off on the back. He said, I think a lot of the processes and things that are have been going on in the Air Force are now are partially, obviously I don't take, you know, any significant credit for it, but myself and a whole lot of uh, widows through these tragedies have pushed and pushed and pushed. And the people that mattered as they went up through the ranks made an effort to change things and I'm ever so grateful they did. After all this tragedy and the struggle afterwards, you know, one might be forgiven for walking away from all this sort of stuff, but you didn't. You meet another fast jet pilot, Stu Morgan. How did that happen? Well, I had walked away. As I said, I had packed up and moved to Ireland. I packed my kids up, packed everything launched into rural Ireland to become a country GP, after hours GP, and I had a really good time. But interestingly, I missed my world. I missed my entire world. I did love Ireland. I made great friends over there, but I wanted to get back into my world. So I came back to Brisbane and I got invited to an F-111 Navigator's birthday party. He has been a long-standing friend of mine, remains a great friend of mine to this day. And I walked into this party and to be fair, there was a lot of people there and a lot of people were looking at me going, oh God, the widow's back, what do we say, what do we say? And I could see them all struggling. And there was one pretty good looking guy over in the corner who was looking at my cleavage. And for the first time in my adult life, I walked towards that man. Uh, <laughs> And it was Stuart. He didn't know who I was and he just thought he was looking at, you know, a woman in a leopard print skirt and a tight top. And I went over to talk to him and uh, it wasn't love at first sight because at the time uh, he was told me he was trying get, to get back together with his ex-wife and I thought that was appropriate to leave him alone. But 
unbeknownst to me that that situation had resolved itself and a couple of months later we were joined at the hip and were for the next 18 years. So who was Stu Morgan? He, again, had wanted to be a pilot since he was a child. I have a photograph on his door, which is still on the door at his parents' house, is future pilot sticker, and it's peeling and coming off. And he wanted to join the military from a very early age. He was in air cadets. This is British air cadets. Uh, He became a pilot with the British Air Force. He flew tornadoes, which is uh, a similar bomber fighter aircraft to the F-111. There was a great deal of exchange between our F-111 aircrew and the Tornado aircrew. So in actual fact, Nige, the navigator in Shorty's crash, who was killed along with Shorty, had actually been on exchange in England and had flown with Stuart as Stuart's navigator. Stuart was in Kuwait at the time uh, on a military push. When Shorty and Nigel were killed, uh, he was sent a message. He said he walked out of the bunker in Kuwait and he was going, oh, my God, Nigel's dead, who he knew very well, and he knew Nigel's widow. And he said, I wonder who the pilot was and I wonder if he was married. And he said it never occurred to him standing in the sand in Kuwait that he would one day be married to that widow and raising that pilot's children. So he then came over to Australia as the British exchange officer to fly the F-111 within that exchange system. He had moved over whilst I was living in Ireland and obviously he knew about the crash, he knew about the issues, he was in the same squadron that my husband was when he died, Um, but I was no longer in Australia, I was overseas. So when I came back, he didn't actually know who I was because he'd never met me. And when I walked into this party, he didn't know who I was. So he talked to me as a woman, not as a widow. And what happened from there? Look, it, it's awful to say, but air crew, there's, there's a common thread in all of them, and uh, particularly the men, but also in the women. But Stu was just another version of what I knew. Now, don't get me wrong, he was completely different to Shorty in personality. Shorty was naughty and a larrikin and Stu was absolute stickler for the rules and a rock and precise and on time and properly groomed. And he was a different person, but his internal characteristics were identical. Rock solid, totally loving, totally focused on the family and totally focused on the military world and all of their mates and colleagues. So it was so familiar, even though he was a different person, but familiar enough that the moment we were together, it was like we'd been together forever. So you were building a second service family, effectively. Everybody uh, said, are you crazy marrying another pilot? And the classic question is always, aren't you worried about him? And I'm thinking, well, what what a stupid thing to say. I mean, uh, is everybody worried about their husband every time they walk out the door? You know, of course we are, but military wives learn very early if you're going to survive in this world, you need to say, right, today's another day and nothing bad's going to happen. So Stu just naturally knew to calm me down. When he was flying the F-111, uh, they often fly at night, Uh, He would text me when they landed 
and say, just going to debrief home in a couple of hours and I would realise that I was still awake and that I would then go to sleep knowing that he'd landed. So he didn't, I didn't check up on him. We didn't have a sort of an agreement, but he knew deep down just to let me know that things were going swimmingly. And even when he was overseas, America, Malaysia, all those places they go, he would just sometimes send a little text saying, landed, talk soon. So all those years, we then, in 2003, another friend's uh, husband died. He was an Air Force pilot. He'd actually gone the other way and joined the British Air Force, even though he'd been an Australian Air Force pilot, friend of Shorty's. He died whilst out training and running, uh, and she had the funeral back in Brisbane. And I was at I was actually looking at her going, oh, my God, two and a half years ago, this was me, little children in this fog state. And I went to the wake and I'm talking to everybody and some of, some of the people I hadn't spoken to since Shorty's funeral because we're scattered all over Australia and everyone's going, how are you going, Kim? And I'm thinking, oh, God, I've just told Stu, he was, Stu had been requested to go back to England to fly the tornado in the Gulf War, and he said he'd cut short his exchange posting in order to do that and asked me if I'd come with him. And I'd said, are you mad? Well, I'm not leaving and moving to England. And I was at the wake of this other Air Force pilot friends, and I rang Stu up and said, come and pick me up from the pub. And he goes, what's wrong? And I said, I'm coming with you. And he goes, oh, my God, what's brought that about? I said, life's too short. He said, we better get married then. And I said, well, you better get asking then. So he got down on bend and knee when we got home, asked me to marry him. We were married very shortly afterwards and packed up the entire family again and flew to England and became an RAF wife. I did the juggle with the children, the boarding school. Stu had two kids from a previous marriage, which were very much in my life. I had them every weekend. Hannah and Charlie, I love them dearly. I'm still very close to them. And we then made a decision that he was going to leave at his 20-year point and try and get into the Australian Air Force so we could uh, move back to Australia. That was all going swimmingly. He'd given his notice to the RAF. We were waiting on his uh, acceptance to the Australian Air Force when the global financial crisis hit at the beginning of 2008. And his offer to join the Australian Air Force was rescinded because all of the pilots who were leaving to go to airlines had rescinded their resignations because all of a sudden the world had just crashed. So all of a sudden he has no job with the RAF and no job back in Australia. And we had committed to building a house in Australia. So he ended up with British Aerospace Systems. They made him an offer he couldn't refuse to fly the tornado teaching the Saudi Air Force pilots in Dharan in Saudi Arabia. So off he went to Saudi Arabia. I packed up some of the children, came back to Australia, built a house, got a job. I spent the next three years commuting to Saudi Arabia. And finally, uh, I'd had enough of this commuting for three years. One daughter went to university and went to college. The other one went to boarding school. My son was at university in Imperial College in London. My stepkids were still in the UK. So I packed up, I flew to Saudi Arabia and I started work as a doctor on the compound, the military compound for BAE systems. And we had two years in Saudi Arabia. 
We, he then finally got an offer to come back to Australia. By that stage, the F-111s had retired to come back as a fighter combat instructor with the Super Hornets. We jumped at this chance. So I came back to Australia at beginning of 2000 and end of 2012, started work at Amberley, getting ready, uh, back to my old job, actually, uh, back in the reserve again. He then had to do 18 months in Perth and in Newcastle, getting up to speed on what we used to call the Hawk Trainer then. He came up to fly the Super Hornet, uh, just gone solo on the Super Hornet and spat a disc out in his neck, was nearly paralysed, had emergency surgery and was told he could never fly ejection seat aircraft again, which for a 44-year-old fast jet pilot was traumatic. Um, he ended up... Uh, being offered flying the KC-30, which is a tanker and which is similar to a Qantas A330. And I said to him, look, if you do that for a few years, you can then join an airline and we're getting to the point where I can just come with you and we can travel the world and do the airline job. In episode five of Up Close, our veterans negotiate life after deployment. For one of them, an unexpected chance to be posted overseas must be balanced with a family crisis. Up Close, Conversations with Modern Veterans is a listener production in association with the Australian War Memorial. Written and produced by Adam Shand. Executive producer is Todd Stevens. Audio production by Ed Gooden and Link Kelly. Listener.